Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian Podcast. This one entitled, Meghan and Harry and the Monarchial Presidency. The date, March 2021st, and my name is Bell Avis. I was hesitant on this topic. I really was. First, the topic seemed so thin and banal that I questioned whether it was of enough importance. Second, so many others were opining on this subject. But among the many bites spent, there was a number, particularly by the Wall Street Journal's Peggy Noonan and National Review's Cameron Hilditch, both of whom I quote here, that brought some thoughts into light. And there were two concepts of which I did not see covered, or at least not extensively enough. The concept of what sort of unification we see in the United States and what that means when we invest that unification into a politician. And the personage, the the third person in that little triumvirate of interview uh, power, Oprah. I don't think her role was really covered enough in this. As many of you have over the past year, I ask your indulgence and hope that by the end of this piece, you too will see it was worth your while to spend time with two people who are unfortunate at best and possibly scurrilous at worst. The concept of the absolute monarch has always been a thing of fiction. To a certain degree, Roman emperors derived their absolute power from the nobility, the praetorians, and later the army. Caligula believed he was an absolute ruler, heck, he even thought he was a god, until the point when a praetorian murdered him after a four-year rule. His illustrious predecessor, Augustus, kept up the fiction of a republican government based on the fate of his great-uncle, Julius Caesar. Japanese and Chinese emperors had a mandate from heaven, but that did not prevent curbs on imperial powers from nobles or mandarins, and in the 1600s, military leaders such as the shoguns in Japan. Louis XIV, the epitome of the absolute French monarch, built Versailles not just as a testament to his power, but also as a way to keep the nobles from their ancestral lands. It is more challenging for a French count to raise an army when he is partying at Versailles instead of plotting in some chateau near Orleans. The same lack of true absolutism has been a hallmark of the British monarchy going back to Alfred the Great in the 9th century. In that time, it was the Wessex Witten that chose kings, and in the case of Alfred, he succeeded his brother in place of his nephew because the Witten supported him. William the Conqueror would not have succeeded at Hastings without the support of his nobles. And in 1215, King John's nobles began whittling down even that power through the Magna Carta, which put the rule of law over the monarchy. John's son, Henry III, was forced to go to his nobles in a protean form of parliament for funds for his wars and later for an aborted crusade. As noted by History Extra, quote, Parliament came into existence during Henry's reign because Magna Carta prevented any monarch from acting on a whim. He needed the counsel and consent of his barons, knights, and clerics on law and taxation matters. In 1236, the name Parliament was first used to describe these assemblies of state, unquote. The system worked with a warrior king such as Edward I or Edward III. These kings could conquer land and issue this booty to their followers and extract money from subject peoples. But the minute the conquest stopped, such as in the reigns of Edward II or Richard II, the nobles grew restive, leading to the deposition of the latter by Henry of Bolingbroke. 
This conflict culminated in the English Civil War in the 1600s and the execution of Charles I. Though the Stuarts were later restored in 1666, no British monarch went directly against Parliament after the 17th century. The last time that a British monarch had a modicum of power died with Victoria in 1901. Great Britain willingly entered World War I without the immediate decision of George V, the reigning king at the time. This would have been Prince Harry's great-great-grandfather. Unlike World War II, the First World War was more of a voluntary exercise and ended with the destruction of 900,000 souls, the flower of British manhood, again, without if you will, the driving force of the king behind this. In the movie, The King's Speech, Harry's great-grandfather, George VI, the monarch at that time, is seen as a national unifying force. Now, Churchill's magnificent speeches were incredibly unifying for the British people, arguably more so than George's speech. But even Churchill was a Tory politician, only brought out of the wilderness for exigencies of stopping the Nazis. He would be discarded in 1945 after victory was assured. The monarchy, however, in the person of George VI, or today in Elizabeth II, is perpetual. The names of Margaret Thatcher, or even Tony Blair, they come and they go, but Elizabeth II is always there. The Netflix miniseries The Crown is often, and incorrectly, cited as history. Yet, as with such historical fiction, there are nuggets we true historians can mine. In the show, there's talk about dignity, as in the crown, and efficiency, as in parliament, including the parliamentary leader, the prime minister. In George V, George VI, Elizabeth II, and presumably in a future William V, the dignity part is understandable. Note I skipped Charles III. However, I would question the efficiency part. But I'm not an anarchist or a full-on libertarian, as noted in previous podcasts. We have to have some government, so the goal of efficiency is admiral, though seldom truly achieved. But in the case of the American Republic, the concept of the chief of state, something invested in the British monarchy, is placed upon the shoulders of the office of president. Now, as the previously mentioned Cameron Hilderich, writing for National Review, notes, quote, in the United Kingdom, the pageantry and the rituals of patriotism are removed from the political sphere and entrusted to the care of an apolitical sovereign. Having this bifurcation is tremendously beneficial effects. The power of nationalist sentiments and patriotic allegiances can be extremely volatile when they are allowed into the political process. Just look at what this does in the United States. Americans feeling increasingly that the identity of, the, of their country is on the line during every presidential election. The president is not just the chief officer of the executive branch of the federal government. He is the head of state, the commander-in-chief, the nation's representative to the rest of the world. He lives in a designated white mansion where people stand whenever he enters the room. All of the trappings of national transcendence are vested in this fundamentally political figure, unquote. So is the American system, which invests power greater than the British prime minister and adds in the ceremonial aspects of the monarchy in the office of president, efficient? Is it dignified? The president of the United States has 23 direct reports. Yes, you heard that right. 23 direct reports. 
Now, anyone listening who has ever been part of a hierarchical organization should be overawed by this fact. Think about how many reports your boss had, or you had. Was it half of 23? Yet our president also has to do all of the chiefs of state stuff, award medals of freedom and dedicate ships and go to state dinners, all of the things performed by the monarchy in the United Kingdom. There is also a more insidious use of the presidency as a unifying force. In an external crisis such as World War II, it is convenient to have a rallying point for the nation. And this is what FDR became beginning with his Day of Infamy speech in World War II. But it was the same Roosevelt who used the crisis of the Great Depression to unify the nation to a wholly political goal. And that goal was the control of the economy through governmental fiat. We see it today with COVID. Biden's pretensions at unifications are the cover for a host of far-reaching progressive initiatives and the recent placement of a $5,800 debt burden on the backs of every American in the guise of his entirely borrowed $1.9 trillion, quote, stimulus, unquote, package. No doubt British prime ministers use crisis to further their political aims, but they are still seen for what they are because those looking for national identity have the crown. Hilditch adds, quote, For the monarchy to play this role, it must be strictly neutral and apolitical in all things. Its members must devote themselves to their duties, that they see only the institution when the public looks at them. The unique person beneath must be entirely submerged to the point at which they disappear from the public perspective. Only the crown remains. The Netflix series takes many liberties with the historical record, but it perfectly captures this monarchy's aspect. In fact, everything that separates the respective worldviews of the Sussexes, Harry and Meghan, on the one hand, and Her Majesty the Queen on the other, can be gleaned from this scene alone. Unquote. Unlike Hilditch, I will not refer to Markle as Sussex, because this is a title granted by an institution that she just savaged. My modest proposal, which, well, it has about as much chance as adding those five years to Medicare and Social Security entitlements, something I talk about in a lot of my podcasts. My modest proposal is to create an office for chief of state similar to the president's role in Israel. In Israel, the president, we would have to find a new term, maybe premier or something like that. The president accredits Israel's envoys to foreign countries and accepts the credentials of foreign diplomats serving in Israel. He signs every law enacted by the Knesset and treaties and agreements with foreign governments that the Knesset has ratified. The grubby stuff of direct politics and the positions lie within the purview of the prime minister. The president can sit above that in Israel and be that national unifying force. Leave the grubby stuff to the prime minister. Now, because I began this talking about Meghan and Harry, I'm going to give my little take on this. Numerous questions are evolving around the actual desires of Meghan and Harry. Assuming Marco is telling the truth, and a royal made a dumb and ill-considered statement about her child, is that not something that seems best settled in the confines of the family, as opposed to in front of millions on Oprah's watch? In the quote itself, Concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born bring up additional questions. Did Harry and Meghan confront this person and explicitly state that such opinions are intolerable, as a strong person would have done? Especially, as noted, the speaker was not the head of the family, Elizabeth, or the presumptive hope for the monarchy's future, William? 
It was not said. As for the suicide statement, any such proclamations need to be addressed with gravity and openness. All too often, these statements are the way for a person suffering from severe depression to let others know of their malady. It is, in fact, an ask for help. Again, we do not know of the complete response of the direct family members here. Did they tell the closest members, Harry's brother or father? And then, were they dismissed out of turn, these concerns? And if this were the case, then, by all means, their indignation is justified. But there are other questions. Often, severe depression is the cause of chemical imbalances. So that is why so many psychiatrists prescribe SSRIs, such as Lexapro and Prozac. Severe depression can also be caused by experiencing severe trauma, as is the case with combat veterans suffering from PTSD. Did an insensitive remark about her child constitute this level of trauma? Did her mental illnesses predate her marriage? And if so, why would she subject herself to a world that hounded her husband's mother to her death. In the interview, Markel makes several statements professing ignorance of the experience of those marrying into the royal family. This naivete is a bit much in a world that is quite obsessed with the royals. The marriage of Harry's parents was one of the most watched events on the planet, as was their subsequent marriage and subsequent divorce. Another possible narrative is that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are motivated by wants and desires that have very little to do with either the British or American public's best interests. In this regard, they have chosen two of the best ways to engender sympathy. The first is to use the all-too-common charge of racism. This charge is the technique that is now being pushed forward to fundamentally transform our economy, our culture, our history, and our society. The second is is, is perhaps arguably even more significant concern. I believe in pockets of systemic racism. After all, I see it in the hegemony that the teachers' unions hold over education, keeping minority students in poorly performing schools. But it's the unions that need to be done away with, not the entire American society. But in the case of suicide, this is a genuine and highly terrifying disease that affects all too many people, especially young ones. If Markel is somehow weaponizing suicide to cover for her genuine desire to be Hollywood royal to be Hollywood royalty as opposed to British royalty, then her claim is not only questionable but damaging to those who are genuinely suffering from mental disabilities. Her claims of racism are also engaging in the context that so many, from journalists to professors to the United States president, are asserting that the United States has systemic racism. And if this is the case, why would Markle want to flee Britain for the environs of such a racist America? As Peggy Noonan notes in the Wall Street Journal, quote, she and Harry were originally aligned by their cause-driven work. I've always been outspoken, especially about women's rights. She wishes to live authentically, just getting down to basics. This involves rescue chickens. Yes, rescue chickens. She and Harry spirited them from a factory farm. Well, you know, I just love rescuing, she said. This was perhaps meant to underscore the idea that she rescued Harry from his carnal house of a family. She is good at underscoring. She watches the little mermaid and comes up with a handy metaphor for her journey. And I went, oh my God, she falls in love with the prince. And because of that, she has to lose her voice. But by the end, she gets her voice back. This is performative to the nth degree, unquote. As Noonan correctly states, 
the person sitting on that couch opposite her, one is somebody who grew up in the spotlight, but the other, by training and profession, is in fact an actress. And get her voice back? Markel was a reoccurring character on a B-list television program, since canceled, that nobody, outside of watching Suits, the show, had heard of. But now she gets Oprah Winfrey, voice indeed. Before the internet, it was a struggle to have a voice. This inability to possess a speaking platform applies to, well, me as much as anyone else. It would have been great to have been a history professor, but as Harry Chapin once saying, there were bills to pay. So by the time the debts were settled, it was really too late for the PhD path. But I discovered, well, this amazing thing called the internet. And now you gain the benefit or the irritation of hearing my historical and political pontifications. They once called the 1980s the me generation, but the internet and social media have brought that to a startling reality. When a person can present their own Facebook page, TikTok, YouTube videos, Twitter account, and <clears throat> podcast, the me show never ends. Hilditch noted that the point of the British monarchy, unlike the American presidency, is that there is no me. There is just it. And when you are part of the monarchy, you subordinate the me for the it. The primary institution at the center of all society was once the family. This was another it not me place. When bringing in a harvest or paying the, la the landholder's rent depended on the family unit's collective work, that is a little different from a profession where having one million followers and earning big bucks by being an influencer. And being an influencer is not just the ultimate me job, but one that is probably coveted by Markle herself. And about Winfrey. This is something that I really think is missed and not really talked about as much in all of these Meghan and Harry coverage. I have always been fascinated by Winfrey and her business acumen. After working her way through various television roles in the 1970s, Winfrey took over a low-rated talk show in 1984. She quickly moved the show from last to first, but her deal to syndicate her show in 1986 elevated her from the ranks of successful TV personality to media mogul. There must have been a point where a group of TV execs would have offered Winfrey a million dollar salary. Heck, maybe three. More than likely, all of these figures were male and white. Imagine the room where, where you have this African-American female negotiating with all these white males. But by syndicating her content, not taking a salary and becoming an employee, but owning the content, she owned and reaped massive rewards. Winfrey's net worth today is $2.7 billion. She is not in the 1%. She is in the 0.001%. That is why it's a bit rich that Winfrey should be entertaining a charge of racism and a tangential one at that when she is a living, breathing example of how society has fundamentally, nay, systemically changed. As of 1970, there would have been no Oprah, much less a Harpo, her studio. In 2020, she is more incredible wealth than all but a few white men. And her influence is pretty much higher than anyone outside of the Oval Office. This African-American female who grew up in poverty is now a multi-billionaire and the friend of the highest level of American society. This was the person who so seriously entertained Markel's charges? To resign from the royal duties 
of statesmanship is understandable. To use the power of being royal for self-aggrandizement is also logical, if a little greedy. But this pair wants both. They want the aura of royalty without having to do what is expected today of royalty. That is revealing. Then when things do not go to their ends, they resort to the most common and egregious, and by their own account a vague claim of racism, as if a royal duchess was akin to Emmett Till. This is spurious. In the form of an endowment, as heir from his mother, Harry's net worth is north of $40 million, and this is the very definition of privilege. Of course, it should be noted that that worth is about 1.4% of the person who is sitting across from him and his wife. Winfrey herself has been talked of as running for president. But keep in mind, the minute she commits to such a course, she will have to provide positions on several issues affecting the country. Where does, where does Oprah stand on taxes, immigration, culture wars, foreign policy, defunding the police, education, health care? We know that she loves Barack Obama and we imagine her as a liberal, but that is still a projection. We are not fully certain. Yet the minute she takes a position... 40% of the country will turn against her, as, as does anybody running for president. It is the fate of the politician, not just in 2020, but back in 1920 as well. But where do the Windsors stand on any of these issues? We do not know which is the point. Where do they stand on, the, on those things that would fundamentally benefit all citizens within the UK? Well, they're for the citizens of the UK, simply and succinctly. It is called unification, the real kind, not the fake version peddled by Joe Biden. Would Oprah make a pretty good queen? Probably not, with her ego. After all, every one of her magazines is called O, and she's on the cover of every one of them. One thing is just probably for certain, she would not want to be president. This is Bell Avis. Thank you for listening. And check out all of our other podcasts at www.conservative.com or on our Buzzsprout podcast site. Thanks for listening.